Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Hello, future minority doctors. Thank you for joining us today as we interview a physician who has a very important role in many children's lives. Please let me introduce to you Dr. Jose Alfonso Silva Sepulveda, a pediatric cardiologist. In other words, he's a kid's heart doctor. Dr. Jose completed medical school at the Keck School of Medicine at USC and then went on to become a double-boarded physician for internal medicine and pediatrics by completing his residency at USC. He then went on to further specialize in pediatric cardiology at UCSD. He now resides with his beautiful wife and six children in San Diego. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Jose. Thank you so much. It's nice seeing you after so many years. <laughs> yes, nice. yes. And you're the first cardiologist that's on, on our podcast, so we're really, really excited, okay? <laughs> so before we dive into a lot of questions about what it's like to be a cardiologist, I'd like to start out by you telling us about who Jose was before becoming a doctor. And then if you can just tell us about your upbringing, your background, and then if you're the first doctor in your family. Yeah. So I see myself as a very uh, simple guy. I was born in Mexico. I, I, I came to the U.S. when I was 14 years old. And when I came to the U.S., my family and I lost everything. We just literally came with a with a backpack. <laughs> we all of the, all of the longest were were like a backpack, you know. All of, we left all of our immediate family back home. So for me, having the experience of an immigrant was like something that is still like is part of my identity, to be honest. Because when I came to the U.S., it was like four of us, and then it was five of us, and we used to live in a super small apartment. We didn't have enough money to pay the rent. I used to sell tamales in the street, like donuts. I used to help my dad doing constructions. So for me, like, it was so important to like, be with my family, help my mom, help everyone from, from the beginning. So I kind of understood like how difficult it is like being a migrant, you know, in, 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 the, in this country. And then after a while, I mean, I just wanted to do uh, something better for my family, for myself, and, and from everyone. But but I'm gonna tell you, uh, when I when I was in high school, just trying to adjust, like with this whole migrant experience, it was terrible. I used to be a, a troublemaker. I think I got into three fights. I got suspended multiple times. I almost got kicked out of high school. <laughs> so, oh my God! I didn't know that about you. <laughs> Why do you think you're getting in trouble in high school? I think part of the thing is that I, I was hurting, you know, because, you know, when you leave your family behind, you kind of start like being a rebel in, in a way. And there's a lot of things that you probably don't understand uh, when you are a teenager. I'm trying to make sense of my new reality in the U.S. And, you know, also facing some like kids being a little bit tough on me because uh, I didn't speak. Uh, English and, and, and going to that type of toughness, that kind of made me be on the defensive and sometimes get into fights, arguments and things like that. So I was a little bit like a, like a rebel. And I think I was like that for the first two years of my high school. And then I suddenly like, well, it's, it's kind of like a cute story, right? I kind of fall in love with like this girl that was very, very smart. 
and I kind of wanted to, you know, start being smart like her. So, you know, I started like reading books, trying to behave in class. And, and that was one of, one of the things that started like helping me to change a little bit my, my behavior and how I will deal with, with things. And then, you know, I met like a lot of cool people when, when I was in high school. Oh, wow. And um, so it seems like a girl made you turn around. That's a good thing. <laughs> you know, love is a powerful thing. When you use it the right way, I mean, you can definitely use that positive energy in, into mm-hmm. like trying to make positive changes in your life. Can you tell me about like your family? So um, like how big is your family? How many brothers and sisters you have? And what your parents did growing up? Or if your mom was a stay-at-home mom or was she working out too? Basically hustling it because that's what you guys were doing to try to make ends meet. Yeah. So so in Mexico, my dad used to have like a business like selling uh, cash registers, fixing cash registers. But when he came to the U.S., he started like working in construction. So my dad, you know, you know, like 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 a lot of the migrant workers that are in front of, of, of in front of a Home Depot looking for for a job, that that was me and my dad. Like when I came to the U.S., because my dad, like some of the first uh, things he started to do in this country is like working as an electrician, plumber, uh, construction worker, all of that stuff. And I learned a lot of like skills uh, from him. And my mom, she stayed home at raising us. And then on the side, I mean, she used to sell tamales, she used to sell donuts. Mama was like super cool, one of the coolest persons you can imagine. And then I had a brother that he's four years younger than me. And he he actually was a pretty good student when he was in high school. He was like an honor student. I didn't graduate with honors, but he actually graduated with honors. And then he went into becoming a, a mechanical engineering. And then I have a, a little sister that was born here in the U.S. And it's basically, that, that's like the fire was. So how did you end up getting to college then from high school after you were having a hard time? Did you go to community college, go straight through, or how was that journey for you? So I, I, I wasn't documented, right? So I couldn't, and back then when, when I was, um, when I graduated from high school, the AB 540 didn't exist. So in order for me to go to college, I had to pay out-of-state tuition. Like, like a community college, instead of paying like 12 units per hour, it was like 144 units per hour. So I couldn't afford going to college. So what I did, uh, I, I used to work as a security guard for a while. I also uh, used to play the violin in a mariachi band. <laughs> and then I ended up working as a server in, in, in a restaurant. It's kind of like Dennis. It's called like Norm's Restaurant. So I worked there for like for five years. And then after that, uh, I kind of wanted to make a little bit more money, so I ended up working in Olive Gardens as a server. So I kind of did that for for, uh, for two years. Uh, but in do, during that time, I kind of met my wife, my high school sweetheart. And I think from the beginning on, when I met her, like she uh, she was, she is and she was the most important person uh, in my life. She was already going to college, uh, Cal State uh, Fullerton. And during that time, she was supporting me uh, trying to be able to apply to, to, to college. So the first thing I did was uh, going to a community college for two, three years. And I was able to do that. I cannot tell you what, how I did it because I don't want to get in trouble. Because, you know, like a, a lot of times, you know, like m- many many of us migrants, when, you know, we, when we are undocumented, I mean, it, it's tough to, to work and going to school because we don't have anything. We don't have an ID. We don't have a social security. We don't have anything. But once the AB540 passed, 
is when I was able to, you know, uh, transfer to from a community college and then going to uh, to a Cal State LA uh, where I studied bio biology, and that was super tough because I was working like full time. I didn't have a license, <laughs> so because mm -hmm. I, I couldn't get a license because I was undocumented. So I, I was full time student, full, working full time. So I was like going to work, taking the bus one in the morning, two in the morning, trying to do research to go to medical school. So it was like one of the toughest year, years in my life. And then like I decided to try to apply to medical school. I only applied to four or five medical schools in California. I didn't apply anywhere else outside California. I, I was a terrible applicant, I can tell you. I got very lucky and blessed for being able to. <laughs> <laughs> so did you then decide to be that you wanted to do medical school when you were in a community college, or was it until you got to Cal State LA? I mean, I kind of wanted to be a doctor since I was in, in high school. One of the reasons why I wanted to do it is, you know, I always, I, I like helping people. That's kind of one of my my things that always motivated me, right? And then the other thing is, I always wanted to buy my mama house. So, because we lost a house, we lost everything in Mexico. That was kind of like my dream, you know, becoming a doctor and buying my mama house. And then, you know, I always say, I want to be a doctor, I wanted to be a doctor. But it's tough, you know, because when you're in a situation like that, a, a lot of people, they don't believe in you because they think that, you know, because you're in a community college, because you're Latino, you're not able to, you're not able to do it. But I used to stick to it, you know, and having my wife, uh, my future wife, like, at my side, like, supporting me and encouraging me, like, I just keep going, try to do, like, all of the steps necessary. And then I just went through the process, you know? Yeah. And did you end up having your first child when you were in college or was it after? It, it was during medical school. <laughs> oh, it was during medical school. Okay, because I know you had your, your child somewhere between there. So it's it's just, it's a common question that we get to, but... Wow. So you were working many hours going to college, just trying to get there. And then aside doing all that volunteer research and all that stuff, that's amazing. You know, so that's, that's crazy. But I thank you so much for sharing that because I think, I think a lot of times we feel like along the way we don't have the opportunity or we've made mistakes that we think, oh, I made the mistakes and that's just has defined who I'm going to be for the rest of my life right? Whether you get in trouble or you're doing bad decisions, whatever all that is. But it's really nice to hear that you had such a hard time. Yeah, there was fights, you're getting suspended, but that doesn't mean that's going to define who you're going to be in the future. And I try to tell, I mean, as a pediatrician, talk to a lot of the teenagers about that, like, we all make bad decisions or choices. But at a certain point, the good thing in life is you can always turn it around. You, The day you decide you want to turn it around, you can do it. And what the mistakes you've done won't represent who you are in the future absolutely absolutely and are you the are you then the first doctor in your entire family then would you say or is there doctors in mexico or here i think it was one of my grandfather's uh brothers he was a doctor in mexico uh, but i think i only met him one or twice one of my tias my uncle's uh one of my bro uh, my dad's brother's wife uh, my tia He's also a, a doctor from Mexico, so. Oh, okay. But you're the first one here in the United States, correct? Yeah. Yeah. But, okay. between my, but my dad, like, he only went to school to fourth grade, you know, elementary school, and, and my mom graduated high school. So no one, no, one, no one in my immediate family went to college or anything like that. Okay. So you kind of had to just figure out things along the way. 
uh, yeah, how exactly. to get there, <laughs> which I'm, I'm familiar with that. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what you're doing half the time. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then I like some regrets right along the way. Like, oh, I, should, oh, I, should have yeah. I should have done this. But then yeah. the, also, too, just like the grades, the preparing, the testing, which it was hard. And I imagine it was hard for you, too, because of the language as well doing like all the exams we had to do SATs back then <laughs> I don't know if you want to ask me about my medical school credentials but they were horrible 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 my MCAT score was 24 mm-hmm. <laughs> especially like the verbal stuff oh my goodness yes. it's, it's just like it's something I always struggle because English being my second language and the reading part oh man I got I got killed because of that <laughs> what I'm saying is don't get discouraged <laughs> No, and I'm with you. I did not score either what would be the average to get in. I was below because I struggled with verbal too, just like you did. Uh, as a reference, because they've changed the numbers on the MCATs, Dr. Jose's score would definitely be, for you listeners nowadays, it would be way below 500, okay? Because nowadays they use a different metric, so they don't use the one we used. Um, but just as a point of reference. So, you know, sometimes you think that all odds are against you, but with persistence, I think, and faith, <laughs> you just go in and look at Dr. Jose. He, he made it into medical school. Now, I'm going to shift a little bit. If you can just tell us what it's like to be a cardiologist, what a typical day is like for you, like if you have a typical day <laughs> with work. Yeah. So I work in a hospital that is, uh, it has like more than 20 cardiologists. So each of the cardiologists, they have like a specific focus. There are some that they do intervention procedures. There are some that work in the ICU, some that work in the hospital, some that read echoes. So my focus is mainly work in, in clinic. My typical day is uh, I start like around 8 in the morning, 8.30 in the morning. I see my first patient until 5 o'clock. And typically uh, what I do, I see patients that are new to our clinic where, you know, I see someone that is complaining from chest pain, fainting, or feeling the heart racing. Or I can, I see patients that were born with a complex congenital heart defect that that particular child has undergone at least three open heart surgeries early in life, right? I mean, there, there is definitely, you know, the the science, the, the physiology that is, is very it's very unique, right, in, in cardiology, right? Because cardiologists, for the most part, are like plumbers, right? Everything everything has to make sense because everything is connected to a pumping machine. And then there's also a little bit of electricity because in order for the pump to work, it has to have like a specific bead and, and the electrical conduction has to be working perfect, right? So that's kind of like my background of being like uh, helping my dad in construction and all of that. Uh, but for me, what makes the difference is being able to connect with patients. Like like for me, you know, like when I am in the room with a patient, I try to, you know, spend a lot of time with them, try to get to know the kid as much as I can, you know, in the uh, amount of time and, and the family. Sometimes I have patients that are afraid about something or they need like some sort of reassurance, you know, because when someone is uh, have, have like some sort of congenital heart defect, it can be pretty pretty scary for a lot of patients and, and parents, you know. So I think part of my job is not only try to, like, treat medically what needs to be, take, uh, be treated, but also provide, you know, hope for the future. And right now, like, like for example, my daughter, uh, she, she, she was born with a congenital heart defect, and, and she actually is going to need, like, uh, open heart surgery 
in 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 two three months and for me that's a, a very unique experience because now i am on the other side of being, being a parent you know and i i think this is a, a way for me to learn how to connect in in, in, a, in a different way with, with patients and try like to provide hope for the future you know because i think that's important i think my goal when i see all my patients i i told my patients i want you to be happy i want you to exercise I want you to do well in school. I want you to have a beautiful life. And I and for the parents, I thought, enjoy your kids. Have fun with it. Not too far. I, I mean, it's a lot of cool interactions with with patients and family. And and, and you and you develop like really nice bonds. Let me tell you this story. I, I love like one of my favorite Mexican candy. It's called like chaca chacas. It's like this like tamarindo candy. I love it. And and, and those are super rare to find. But check this out. Like the other time, there was this dad of a patient, they say, hey, do you like candy? And say, sure. And then he like got a bag full of those candies and gave them to me and like, oh, shoot, that's so cool. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, I mean, I think that's like, I, I honestly feel when I became a parent, I became a different pediatrician, <laughs> right? Because you connect with them in a different way. And, you know, with the circumstance with your daughter, it sounds like you're already a great cardiologist and you're just going to be better because now, you connect with them on a different way. And for those of you listening, if you check out the YouTube recording, we're actually doing the interview with him holding his baby girl. So if you guys want to see her, she's doing great and cooperating. So sometimes the beeping that you're hearing, I'm assuming that she's connected to a monitor. Is that the beeping that I hear? I, ha- I have a, a lot of ch- stories to share, but uh, I have a, a son that has type, one of my sons, he has type 1 diabetes. Oh, I okay. Think, like, like an alarm just to keep an eye on his sugar. Okay, so that's probably what it is. So you can hear Dr. Jose with this other son that has a type 1 diabetes. So if you guys hear that beeping. And I wanted him to have his baby with him and have all this because I want you guys to really see that how human like being a doctor is and just the love of the work we do, but also just being who we are and enjoying our culture and join our family because I, I know Dr. Jose personally and you're a, a big family man. I was like, no, of course, let your daughter be on here with us. So just so so everybody wants to check it out, you guys can see that. What made you want to be a cardiologist? Because you could have specialized in everything. I mean, you did training with adults in internal medicine, um, and you did training with pediatrics as well. What made you decide, like, I think I want to be a cardiologist and then a pediatric cardiologist? Like, how did that happen? You know, part of the decisions that we take in life, I think it has to do with the people that we meet, you know? I think when I was in medical school, I was like so lucky of, of having a really good mentor that I considered a, a friend, like Tony Monares. He's, he's a medpitch doctor. So when I met him, uh, he's one of he's one of the doctors that I met for the first time. That were medpitch, like a wonderful human being, an amazing doctor. So he was kind of like the first person to inspire me to be like a medpitch doctor. And he used to be in love. He he is in love with the physiology of congenital heart, heart, heart disease. So one of the first lectures I, I got from him was like about how everything works with patients that are born with a hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which essentially means that you're born with half a heart. And and when he started like introducing that topic and everything else, uh, I just want to be like him, you know, like I wanted to do medicine, take care of pediatrics and adults. And then I also wanted to do like pediatric cardiology and then and that's that's how everything started, you know. So that's why I think like in life it's so important to have like a good friend and a good mentor 
because those are the people that can definitely help you accompany you in like the important process uh, in your life. Yeah, I agree with you. Did you ever consider anything else besides becoming a doctor? Or were you kind of just said like, this is it? A teacher. Oh. High school teacher. And I want to tell you why, because I feel like when I was in high school, I, I was like hurting a lot. Uh, and and even I I mean you know like a lot of stuff that we go through life you you still you still hurt for a while even after after high school but some of the mistakes I make in high school and then and then it kind of makes you realize like how one little thing would have probably take my life into a totally different uh, direction so I I feel like being a high school teacher has such an important role because mm-hmm. there are kids that they you know they need like mentors you know someone that can guide them through that process in, in, in their lives. So that's something that I, I would definitely will have done if I would not have been a, a doctor. Although I'm sure you work now with medical students, residents, where you yeah. work at. So you're you're a teacher still, I, I, I think. But it's not it's not the same because usually when you see high, high you know medical students and, and residents, those those are like the, the 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 kids that they they already made made it into uh into academics and everything else. But like like the kids like that are in high school are more like kids that are more like uh vulnerable. You know that they may not even graduate from high school and 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 they just hanging around with the wrong crowd. And and trust me, like when I was in high school, oh man, like you see like crazy stuff, like other kids like getting into trouble, gangs. It, it's really tough. Like it's it's very it's very tough for like those high school students to to navigate like all of those choices and make the right choice. Yeah. And what would you say is being a cardiologist is the best? Well, I think you kind of mentioned what the best part of your job is really connecting with people, especially when they're coming in so scared that like for a parent who has a child born with a heart issue, because I've seen them too, so I know how how important it is that that relationship for you and that trust building there what would you say is the hardest part about being a cardiologist making a mistake mm. i think um like doctors we we, we are we are human and, and we can make a mistake and for me my b- biggest fear is uh making a mistake that can hurt someone because that's something that you know whenever whenever i make the wrong choice make make a mistake or something like that it, it takes it takes me a while to recover, you know. I, I, I take it to the heart because you know I love my fa- the fa- my family, you know. I love, and the last thing I want to do is just to do something unintentional that may make us make us harm, you know. And unfortunately, like we deal with patients that are really really sick, and sometimes it may be the difference of admitting that kid that day or, or letting them go home for for an an extra day that can that can make a difference. It, it just it, it, it that's the part that it, 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 it's pretty scary about uh theatric cardiology that we, 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 we have patients that are like some patients that are very complex and very frail. Thank you for sharing that because I feel like as a primary care doctor that's one of my biggest fears with anything that has to do with the heart. And um it it is. It's just because if you maybe miss something it really can cause a lot of damage, right? So I am so thankful for cardiologists, and I think I share this with many pediatricians. <laughs> we love our cardiologists because it's something that's with children is very hard to pick up because they can't talk, they, they can talk depending on their age, but a lot of it is just 
being able to pick it up because they can't tell us necessarily if they're short of breath or if it hurts or how they're feeling. It's hard. <laughs> so um, thank you for what you do. And I always feel reassured when I know we have cardiologists <laughs> that can help us out. <laughs> and you know something like for me, it's kudos like to, to my colleagues because I mean, we have we have in radius like an incredible group of people. We have like people that are that do like interventional cardiology or transplant or like physical care or the surgeon that are like almost on call 24 7 like 365 days of the week i mean those people and, and they are the, the doctors that deal with the acuity because they spend more time in the hospital than, than me and man like kudos for my colleagues like that that they keep like our patients and our families uh healthy you know can you explain what an interventional cardiologist is to our listeners? Oh, yeah. So interventional cardiology is, is a pretty cool field uh, within pediatric cardiology. So essentially is that there is a way without for a patient without having open heart surgery where you can put a new valve in the heart. And a valve is like a little door between the chambers of the heart that open and close that allows the blood to go freely from the heart to the rest of the body. So an interventional cardiologist can put a new valve with open heart surgery. If there is like a artery or a vein that is narrow, they can open it up with like a specific device. They can close like holes in the heart, like ASDs or BSDs with, with devices. And they can do all of these like, like cool stuff. And the way they do it is like literally, it's, it's a procedure where the patient has to be under anesthesia, but instead of opening up the chest, they the, the interventional cardiologists use like a specific vessels in the neck or in, in, the, in the groin, in the leg, where they can puncture uh, the vessel and it's the size of the tip of a pen. And through there, they can put like a small catheter, a small wire, and being able to, you know, go inside the heart, take measurements of the pressures inside the heart, inject at like contrast to take pictures and then be able to deploy a device you know and and we and in Reddit we had like three really good interventional cardiologists one of them is kind of is my mentor like dr al said i want to say her name because she she deserves a, a lot of credit and she's one of the most hardworking people i know and, and she's an amazing human being that's amazing. I could just imagine trying to put in a little wire through such a small vessel. Like that's just truly. No, like my colleagues are just taking the field into the next level, you know, and I think uh, all of that is, is, is helping a, a lot of families, you know, because the thing with congenital heart disease, many, many times patients, they, one open heart surgery may not do it. Patients may need like multiple heart surgeries through, throughout their life. So with this type of interventions, you are able to reduce the amount of uh, open heart surgery someone is going to need throughout their, their life. Yeah. And you know, the cool thing is like the surgeons and the intervention of car cardiologists, they, they work so good as a team because you will, you will assume that the surgeon don't want the intervention of cardiologists to kind of steal their business, but it's not like that. It, it's just mm -hmm. like, it's beautiful. And you know, like when you see people working together like that. Yeah. And just for you listening, congenital heart disease is just a medical term for when a baby's born with a heart issue. That's just what it means. So if you hear us referring to that, that's what it means. I'm I'm just curious because it sounds like, you know, you're busy with cardio. I'm sure you have to do calls sometimes or whatever it might be. But how do you, and I'm asking this because we get so many of these questions from a lot of young people, especially high school students, like how you can be a parent 
and be a doctor. And I think like you are a prime example because you have six kids, you know, and you're, I can tell you're very involved with your children too. Like, how do you manage that? How is, I, I'm sure it's somewhat stressful. <laughs> it's stressful. I have two and I'm like, wow. But, um, you know, I'm just curious to hear in that way, you know, a lot of, a lot of students, they think that they can't be a parent and a doctor. Yeah. Being a parent as a doctor is extremely, extremely hard. And I'm not going to deny it. I think it has to do a, a, a lot about your balance, you know, because, you know, everyone tries to keep a balance between professional, professional life and your family life. Right. Let's, do you want to go? Gonna... Yeah, go ahead. Go take right. a break. <laughs> um, so we'll stop really quick and then you can come back. Yeah. <laughs> so as I was saying, like, how, how do you manage being, you know, a father of six? And being a doctor. Well, I want to tell you this. I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> I, I'm being honest. <laughs> I love the honesty. <laughs> I, I think it has to do with what, what feels right for you, right? I think, for, for example, for me, this is a little bit harder because as a Latino, Mexican, for me, family is so important. So, 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 so important. And especially because, you know, I, I came from a different country. I kind of left my family behind. So I always have this thing that no matter what, like my wife and my kids are going to be the most, most important thing because that, that's, that's, who, that's who defines who I am. And in order for me to be a doctor, I had to be a good dad. I had to be a good husband. I had to be a, a good human being, right? So, uh, when you work in academics, like for example, in UCSD, there is a, an expectation of about patient care, research, education, all of this stuff, right? But as a family man, you know, you have the expectation of spending time with your kids. It's not only about buying them clothes, mm -hmm. like taking them for movies. You have to spend time with them. You have to, like, get to know your kids, have a lot of time with them, right? Even even people, a lot of I heard a lot of people saying quality time, quality time. Yeah, quality time is important, but you also need quantity. And for me, trying to keep these things, like, on floor is really hard because sometimes I feel... I mean, not giving enough time for my kids. And sometimes when I, uh, like, I feel like I may not be spending enough time in the hospital doing, doing some of the things I want to do, like research, reading, and everything else. And I think if you are, like, a sensitive human being, I think you should be having those struggles, right? Because I think if you don't have those struggles, then you're probably miss, missing the point. Because there is not even Superman is going to be able to, have like all the time in the world for their kids or and all the time <laughs> the world for, for that. And because we are humans and they only have 24 hours, I think I always, always going to have this a struggle of adjusting as the time goes, right? Like sometimes I have to spend way, way more time with my family and sometimes I may end up being in the hospital late hours because, you know, there is a sick kid in the hospital or in my clinic that needs that extra attention, right? But I think at the end of the day, it feels right, and I feel satisfied with, with, with what I have. But I always try to revisit like this balance in, in my life. And that's like the philosophical aspect, right? Mm -hmm. Practical aspect is I kind of learn not to waste time with things that are time-consuming, right? I try to be very conscious of how I allocate my time, right? Because if I end up doing some an activity that is going to take hours and hours for me, that is going to take take me away from my kids or from my work, my profession in, in, the, in the hospital. 
So yeah, it, it's really hard for me. I, I, I'm gonna be honest. And when I talk to my colleagues, there may be some people that are okay spending more time in the hospital because their balance is a little bit different to mm-hmm. my balance. So that's kind of the thing that you kind of have to know what is your balance for you to, to make it right for you. I agree with you. It's like a give and take, and it's not the same. It just depends, you know, and as your kids get older or they get things, sometimes like medical, you know, things change and you just adjust depending on the need because every child is different, right? So I I definitely agree. How was it for you being a parent while you were in medical school? Yeah, um, that was tough because my, my, my daughter was born Shoot, so she she was born when I was in second year, so so yeah, that was tough, right? Because like it, it's during this time, right? That you're trying that when you're in medical school, you're trying to do really good in your first two years, study. I mean, I think the first two years of medical school, you want to pass, right? All of your classes, you want to get involved like in a research project, and then also you want to do good in the steps. So for me, I think. Having my daughter early in medical school kind of made me realize that I didn't want to do, and besides having a mentor that inspired me, but the other part is having my daughter made me realize that for me, I needed to choose something in the field of medicine that was going to give me a little bit of flexibility for, for my hours, you know? Flexibility, right? So you can spend time with your daughter, right? Yeah. And then like, on the last two years of medical school, especially third year, like I think third year for medical school, I don't, I think it's probably the same for for everyone. is It's kind of the, it's very tough, right? Because when you start like, your clinical rotations, and I remember, you know, waking up at five in the morning to, to go to to run in surgery, mm-hmm. and and I think we were on call every three days, so it, it was like a tough like clerkship uh, in USC, and that was tough because I wasn't seeing my daughter and everything, but. Sometimes the approach I did uh, during that time, and, and it's just wrong, like if I am in, in a marathon. Uh, and I don't know if that's the healthy way to do it, but as it kind of works. Like you can ignore what is on your side. Not totally ignore, but you not not pay a lot of attention and then just kind of focus on your goal and keep run, running your, your intermediate, right? But the danger part about this is that once you make it in, into your goal, you, you have to kind of look around and make sure that everyone around you is fine, right? Because I think in medicine, we make it into our goal and then we have another goal and then another goal and then another goal. And then it's so easy to get, you know, distracted with all of these goals because it's never going to end, you know, like in medicine, there's always going to be, I need to do this. I need to have this goal. And some of the skills that you learn to be able to make it into undergrad, medical school, and even residency, I think that sometimes you kind of have to undo some of the stuff once you are, you have a family and you're like, in the real world because if you do that then you kind of become like a, a workaholic in a way <laughs> you know you're like man, yeah. I, I love work but you have to you want to make sure you spend time with, with your kids and your stuff you have to press that pause button and just take in what's around you yeah because there's always something to do especially through medical school and residency and i think too like just from other friends that have had kids in medical school that what got them through it was like, this is temporary. And again, they were going to look for a type of career that would allow them to have both worlds <laughs> as well. So I'm sure it was hard. Did you struggle while you were in medical school with academically or were you able to get by okay? Like, like undergrad or, or medical no, school? No, in medical school, just as being a parent. Yeah. You know, the first, 
uh, I think the first exam I took, I, I didn't do that well, but then afterwards, I did okay, but I sacrificed a lot, unfortunately. I was spending hours and hours in the library, going home super late, not spending a lot of time with my kids. I think because of that, I, I didn't struggle that much academically, but I, I, I pay a big price. But at the same time, uh, in order to have some available time, uh, you know, I, I try not to be involved in, you know, like the football games, the parties. The social part. Every every school, you they have like a Chicano like office or a Chicano mm-hmm. club. And, you know, like I'm a Latino, Chicano, Mexican. But uh, I, I definitely didn't get in any of their activities because for me, it's, once I was done with my studying from the library, Instead of spending time with my friends, and my, I would just went went home and spent time with my daughter and my and my and my wife. Yeah, no, I I get it. I think that's very common experience for the parents that are in medical school. One of my closest friends in medical school, actually, two of them that my study buddies, they were both parents. So they spent more time with me than they did with their families. But we would work with it where we would take breaks, and then they would bring their kids, and we'd have a dinner together or doing something, and then they'd go back. They weren't involved in other stuff because obviously, just like you said, with your kids. So I, I lived it not because I was a parent, but because the two my two closest study buddies were parents. So I saw that, <laughs> and there was no harm taken. I'm like, go go spend time with your family, or I, I did babysit their kids sometimes. Uh, one final question too. If you could go back in time to your younger self, what would you tell yourself? That's a great question. So I'm going to tell you something to my, about myself. I, I am a very religious person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think throughout my life, I kind of neglect my spiritual needs. And I think that's something that I kind of regret doing. Because I think for me, True happiness is, is to have like a perfect life between your spiritual needs, your uh, intellectual needs, emotional needs, and also your physical needs, right? So the reason why I think um, being close to God is, is so important because I think each of us are going to go through something really, really difficult in our lives. And I think, uh, like, I don't know if you remember, but uh, when, when we were in, in, in residency, like, my mom died suddenly. Uh, I remember. Christmas Eve, and that was one of my, one of the toughest times in, in, in my life. And, and I can tell you that not having God in my life during that time made it way harder. So for me, if I can go back in time, I would probably try, will have tried to, had that relationship with God early on in my life to prepare me for for the tough time that that we all we all have to encounter in in, in our life. And, and you know, I think having having that awareness of how important this is is because when we see patients that they are dealing with terminal illness and things like that, I think it's so important to to knowing that there is God, there is heaven, there is anything else because there's always hope. You know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have that that type of hope for the future. I think it's a little bit harder for the individual, and that's why it was it was so hard for me. Like when I when I lost my mom and everything else, and that's that is the thing I I always told myself. I, I wish if I can go back in time and tell something to myself, I start going to church, grocery. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do remember. Um, just for the listeners, we went. We did residency together, and I remember I saw you. And I still, every Christmas, I actually remember you. Every Christmas. 
because yeah. I know it happened around Christmas and I remember seeing you. But but li- like you said, life happens and having whatever it is, your that spiritual strength where you can fall back through because life is going to happen, whether you're in college and medical school residency or after fellowship, life happens. And having something to fall back on, whatever it might be for you, it's important. No, and not just like for me, like like Christmas, I actually enjoy Christmas. I mean, I, I don't understand. Even even though it went something really hard happened in my life, like losing my mom, which is like, you know, to this point, it was a, the saddest day in, in, in my life. I don't see it as much because, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to make it into a religious podcast, but I told my kids, you know, our goal in life is being good people here on earth for one day for all of us to be together in heaven, you know? And I believe that. Mm-hmm. And I and I will always believe that to the end, you know, because, you know, we have to have hope for something bigger than than, than, than all of this, right? Because, you know, when you work in the hospital, like, you, you see people dying, you know? You see, like, mm-hmm. people, you know? And, and I think having that, that hope for something greater than all of us Something that we may not be able to comprehend because we are not able to see. I think it's something that can that that keeps you going, you know. Mm-hmm. Because like 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 trust me, like how, how can you give hope when someone is dealing with a terminal cancer, you know? Or their child is dying. Yeah. So that's that why, like 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 myself, I have been in funerals of, of patients, and I remember um, I went one. There, there was a pastor. Um, talking in the funeral and, and he says that for him as a pastor he always noticed like when people have faith the funeral feels totally different you know because there is there is hope even even though it's supposed to be a sad day people have hope for something for for, for the future you know something that something beautiful is is, is awaiting for 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 all of us you know and, and i and i think that's that's how i i kind of try to live live my life you know don't try to lose hope in the present because we all in our personal life are going to struggle with, with things, you know. It can happen when you're in undergrad. It can happen when you're in medical school. It can happen when you're in residency, afterwards. But it's important to kind of have all of these strengths together to be able to bounce back and be, be better persons, you know. like Because sometimes when we, we deal with like, like experience like that and, and you are able to channel that experience into positive, into some, something positive, it kind of helps you grow a little bit as a, as a person. It gives you maybe a little bit more empathy. A, a life. So I, I, I always think it's, it's important never to lose, lose hope. I kind of remember, uh, what was the name of the doctor that, that, remember we used to have, I think it was Dr. Cross. She used to do uh, palliative care in US. Yeah, for kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she used to do it for kids and adults, and I remember, like, in her lectures, she, oh, you know who also used to say that? I don't know, you, you probably never met her, but in USC, we used to have this super famous hematologist, uh, Dr. Alexander Levine. I, I don't know her personal, but I had talked to her maybe a few times uh, in my residency, but she's one of the most kindest persons ever, and that was the thing she always said, always, always be called to people you know never never look up and you know for her like she she kind of worked like in the medical field when there was the hiv pandemic you know people didn't know what, what hiv was when all of these patients were like isolated like no one wanted to treat these patients 
and and she was like the first one that said, you know, I'm gonna take care of these patients, and and that was her mode of life, you know, like provide hope to patients and families, like no matter what. And that's why she's she's a, she's a great doctor, you know, because she 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 always did that. It's, it's very interesting. You ever hear her talk? Like she has all of this research that kind of backs how like mental well-being, spiritual well-being, really like helps people heal, like even from malignancy in ways that we, we still don't, don't, don't understand. It's, it's very interesting stuff. Yeah, I, and I, I agree. I think we don't know much about, we know a lot about our brain, but we don't know everything. And I think it, our brain really controls a lot of everything else in ways that we don't understand yet. We have on our podcasts, we've brought in mindfulness and things about that because we feel the psychological piece going through this arduous or hard journey is so important. I think, it, it, you know, academics is important too, but the psychological piece is just huge. So I'm so happy you shared those words because hope is important, right? It's hope. Hope is important for when someone's dying and being a doctor, but hope is also important as you're going through all of this. Like we needed hope the whole time while we were in college and medical school to not give up and things like that. Thank you for talking about that. And I hope that someone today that's listening or is having a hard time with something like these words resonate and hearing Dr. Jose's story, he's gone through a lot, <laughs> you know, from the day he left his home country till like now, you know, he continues to go through a lot, but you keep hope and you keep going and not giving up. And even when you think everything's against you or why is this happening to me? Or why does this have to happen to me? You got to keep with hope. So in closing out, I just want to thank you, Dr. Jose. He's such an amazing doctor. I know him as, you know, personally, but also I have patients that see him and they speak very, very highly of him. So hopefully you've heard something that will keep you on this path, remembering that we need minority doctors because we bring this type of conversation, this type of humanness to people from our cultures or from low socioeconomic backgrounds because we can relate. Peace and love, everyone. <laughs>